0: Welcome to Business Talk Sister Gok. I'm Becca and today's podcast episode title is How to Work with the Government. And this is actually an entire series I'm doing. That'll be the first episode, and then there'll be a couple after this, uh, getting a little bit more detailed into the different aspects of this. Now, a lot of people wonder, how does the government buy things, or what does that look like? And I want to start with an overview of understanding. So first and foremost, you have to realize that the government operates in multiple tiers, right? So, your local city versus the county versus the state, and then the federal level. So you have these different layers and there are similarities in how you approach working with the government, but you have to understand what you're selling and who you're selling it to, because that will affect how you want to approach what you're doing. If you've ever heard of grant writing or anything like that, that would be very similar to the the style of approach that you would take with this. Commonly, if it's a larger piece that a city or government needs, they will say, we're gonna send out what's called an RFP, which is an abbreviation for request for proposals and that happens sometimes if you're listening to like the city council they'll say they're going to throw one of those out and look for businesses to do specific things such as maybe contract out some work to redo the sidewalks within your community or potentially do some marketing and advertising for uh, the local um, economic development. Whatever that is that they're looking for, it's good to pay attention within your area of just what's happening locally because there could be an opportunity for your business there. Now, the first thing I always tell people is you have to decide what you're selling because a lot of times people think, well, they'll just buy whatever I am offering. But if you don't even know what it is, like for example, uh, a lot of times, people think, "Well, I'll just do some consulting." But the reality is that most governments don't really know what they mean by that. When you say, "I'm going to just do consulting," and you have to get specific into a niche. So, let let's talk about understanding your NAICS codes. And so, NAICS is an acronym for North American Industry Classification System. And the reason why this was set in place is because the federal government needed to classify business establishments to understand what services they're offering. And when you start looking at different searches, you can actually go to um, Google it. There's multiple different websites and the NAICS.com website is actually where you can go and just search different things. So for example, if you're going to do some kind of construction or offering maybe nuts and bolts or anything like that there's tons of classifications for things so it's really important to know which categories that your business falls in and that will really help you then understand if there's a need for that on a local level or county level, state, or even federal, and, and part of the federal that I think I didn't really cover yet is also military. Now, there's like a whole nother gamut of things within that that's important to talk about, but let's let's just kind of dig down into using these NAICS codes. So first you find them and you kind of know what you want, then you need to decide how you're going to classify your business, and if you do more than one thing, that's okay. Sometimes Uh, those codes will go back and forth. They'll overlap in different areas. You do need to pick a primary code just so you show up first and foremost for that one. And then you can have secondary codes as well. Just keep in mind that if you are, say, um, a real estate broker wanting to do some stuff for the government or all these different things, there's actually specific additional regulations based on what you're doing. Maybe it's based on like the the class truck size that you have or whatever. So it's really important just to kind of pay attention to what other regulations you're going to have to know about in order to make sure you're in compliance. And you don't have to navigate this on your own. So the first thing I would definitely recommend to do is reach out to the Small Business Administration or in the state of Minnesota, we have a piece of that called PTAC, and so those are procurement technical assistance people that will help you procure government contracts for your business. Now, with that being said, there's actually a lot of things that go into the process of submitting a response to a request for a proposal. Now, on a city level, a lot of times they don't have to go through that process, especially if it's a small city, because there's actually a threshold of cost spending that typically a organization has to meet in order to say okay we need to put out a request for a proposal sometimes instead what they'll do is they'll just get bids and if if you're on the internet or maybe they kind of know you from the area whatever they'll reach out and say will you bid on this project they'll have to get three bids, so that's typically the number is three, um, to do a comparison and then from there, they will decide on the one that's the best fit. Either that's based on what the proposal is from the business of what they're gonna do, uh, price point. There's a lot of things that go into that as well when you get into state contracts and federal contracts. And that whole decision-making process for scoring a proposal is actually very strategic so there's specific amount of points that decision makers can use to decide on whether or not they should go with a contractor or not because they need to make sure that it's a competitive process and it's not based on oh well i know this person and i have a relationship with them so we're just gonna go with that and that's not really fair previously that's how things were done in the past and it was discriminatory right? So they changed the entire process. On a local level, they don't have to use that process all the time. So if you're doing something that's very small scale, it may be good to approach your local government to say, are you interested in purchasing whatever it is? So let's say, I offer a cleaning service where I can come in and clean the park bathrooms once a week or whatever that is. A lot of times that's a really low budget item for them. They don't need a certain level of approval to do that. Now, I think it's important to understand that government functions a lot like larger organizations where there's like what's called a DOA or a delegation of authority, which means that each threshold is a dollar amount of what a person is approved to get on behalf of the government. So, if you have a procurement person for the city, maybe they're the city administrator or somebody that works with the city administrator, that's maybe the utilities person, whatever, is authorized to be able to purchase things on behalf of the city for, say, maintenance on their trucks or equipment to make sure that they can replace a window, whatever it is. So There's different levels of what people are allowed to purchase without having to go for additional uh, requests for approval paperwork and etc. So say you're a windows company and you want to sell a lot more windows to do the whole of City Hall, well then you're probably going to have to bid on that and they're going to do it against other people to see who's competitive and the quality and all that kind of stuff. Now if it's just a oil filter for one time and you're just a local auto shop, now, that's probably not going to be something you're going to bid on. You're just going to say, I'm here. If you guys ever need anything, we have this delivery service, whatever. A lot of times, too, cities will go based on convenience as well. If it is going to save their um, organization more time. So it's it's really helpful to have some sort of thing that you do special just for government if they're going to purchase in bulk or whatever that looks like. So Really kind of decide how you're going to approach your sales process. Now, when you meet with a PTAC advisor or someone from the Small Business Administration, you're going to tell them, hey, I want to work with the government. This is my business and this is what I can do. And here are my NAICS codes that I've decided I fall under. Now, a lot of times they can help you figure out who would be purchasing those kind of things. There's a lot of different departments within the state government as well as the federal. So if your product or service is helpful to a specific area, they're gonna take that into consideration and try to point you in the right direction. Now, I will say the level of experience is varied within advisors. So it is important to do your own research to understand are there other similar companies out there doing the work that you want to do? How did they get into it? And if you can contact people from other states, you're not in direct competition with them typically. Uh, you can ask a lot of questions, and a lot of times those business owners or nonprofit organizations are more than willing to tell you how they got started. This is especially true within the human services field because there's not enough people meeting that need, especially for people who are elderly or disabled or have some sort of additional need. There's there's not a lot of service providers within those industries, and so the other service providers that are there are like, "Yeah, come on, we want you here." And they're more than willing to talk with you about how to get started because The need is so great, there's not enough uh, people to service the need. Now, an important thing to understand is that if it's a federal funding going through to states, it's important for the states to use that funding or they get audited and the federal government says, you're not using this, we're going to take it away from you. Now, states don't want that to happen. (laughs) They want to make sure that they can still retain all of their funding for the budget that they want to have uh, and plan for the future. So they try to make sure that they're actually spending the money allocated to them. And if there's uh, RFPs going out for different things and nobody's bidding on it, they kind of get concerned because that means that they're not doing their job of using that money for the services that they said they would provide to local people. And a big area of this would be, for example, uh, residential treatment facilities for youth or respite services for foster parents. There's not a lot of businesses or nonprofits that are saying, yeah, I want to do that. And so they're saying we have this budget, but nobody's coming forward to say, I will meet that need. So that's a industry tip right there for you if you have that kind of business, because that's something that a lot of people are desperately looking for, especially in local or rural areas, because the the city aspects or metro areas a lot of times have more service providers and and can meet the need versus rural areas, it's incredibly difficult. And and that's why I think it's so important for small business owners to really understand the opportunity of working with the government on a contract. Because There's a lot of things that you may be seeing in your own community and saying, why is it that we don't have these resources here? Well, a lot of times it's because local small businesses aren't willing to step up into this aspect of saying, I'm going to go after a government contract and I will do this work and... I will make sure that this is being provided within my local area because it's a need that needs to be filled. That is honestly one of the best ways to get started on any kind of government contract because they're really looking for people to meet that need. And a lot of times they'll approach nonprofit organizations or current organizations uh, within the community and say, will you do this work too? And that's how a lot of these nonprofits, like first they start as we're going to help the homeless and then all of a sudden they're doing low-income housing, and then also they're doing um, like assistance programs for energy, and they just start taking on all these things because there's not a lot of people out there willing to do the work to get the certifications or whatever they need to be able to work with the government. And so this is a really big opportunity that I don't think most small businesses really think through long-term. So we kind of talked about getting with that small business uh, administration person or your Tech advisor, whoever that is. And then from there, they can help you start going through the process. So the next thing that they're gonna ask you though, is they're gonna say, hey, um, do you wanna go after a specific certification? Now, that could be potentially because you are a minority within your community, you're a woman-owned or a veteran-owned business, maybe even that your business is located within an area that's covered by the housing authority as a HUD zone, which basically means it's impoverished, and you're a local employer that is actually bringing people out of poverty. Now, there are actually advantages to being able to go after these specific certifications, And I think it's really important to just understand what the benefit is. Because if you are a small business owner and you say, well, I'm a woman-owned business. Okay, great. But if you don't have the certification within your state or at the federal level, it's not going to be to your advantage. Now, if you're just doing regular work with other businesses or people in the community, these certifications, they don't really matter at all it's like a hoot and a half. Really, you don't need it. (laughs) But the the reality is, if you want to go after a government contract, this is where it's different. Because as, say for example, a hub zone, H-U-B-Z-O-N-E, certified business, they actually get what's called a 10% price evaluation preference in full and open contract competitions. Now, what that means when I say price evaluation is that remember before I told you about the fact that they use a scoring metric to choose which business they work with if multiple businesses are bidding on the same contract. Now, what that means is when they do their scoring in the category of price competitiveness, you get a 10% advantage over anybody else who's bidding on that contract. So you get like a little boost in the scoring system and say like you're just coming a little bit above or a little bit below your competitors. Well, this is gonna push you to a little bit more than in that scoring section. So it may vary the whole scoring just a bit to give you that advantage to be able to work with with the government and get the contract. Now within the the hub zone, you have to be 51% controlled by U.S. citizen, and you have to be a small business according to the SBA size standards. Now, it is not that hard for most small businesses to be within the size standards. Now, it's important to note that this is actually classified as well by NAICS codes. And the reason for that is because let's say you have a lot of physical assets because you're a gravel company and you need these big trucks and those things are expensive. Now you're not going to be rated the same way as say somebody who's a small business that does career counseling, right? Because you're not going to have the same kind of assets on hand to be able to do the work that you need to do. So that's not going to count against you because it's based on your classification and you're going against everyone else in the same classification category, and then they kind of level that out to say, this is what's considered small business versus you're too big. And sometimes it's like the level of employees, the number of employees you have, all that kind of stuff as well. So don't think that, oh, I'm not going to qualify because I employ this many people or whatever. There's, there's maybe some more additional things that you may have to do to get, Um, paperwork done or insurance or whatever, but it's okay because there's different categories. And even if you don't qualify as specifically a small quote business, you can be a primary contractor on projects. If you say, hey, I've got the experience, I can do this. Then a lot of times they will say, okay, well, here's the contract, but you have to then go out and hire this many smaller contractors that qualify in this category to meet that set-aside number. And so I'm going to also talk about set-asides. So the federal government, as well as state, and I don't necessarily know if every local government has this as a huge priority where they like get audited on it, but there is a overall 5% set-aside for federal contract dollars to be able to use to small disadvantaged businesses. And there's at least a 3% of all prime contracting dollars to hub zone certified small businesses. So what this means is they're trying to say, if you can, at all costs, you should spend 5% of your total budget on working with these people that have these certifications, okay? And then if you can't find them, then you say, all right, primary contractor, i am going to hire you but you in turn have to go out and do your due diligence of hiring x percent of your dollars to other local contractors to subcontract for you that does meet the certification level now because i've gone through the process of certifying my small business as women-owned disadvantaged through the state of minnesota I get calls a lot of the time from prime contractors because i'm on the list and they're saying hey i saw you're on the list i just want to know if you're available i'm working on putting a bid together and i want to know if i can have you as a sub now if you decide you want to do work in multiple states you're going to have to set up yourself as a business in each of the states uh programs for their, their portals. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the portals because that's the next step that usually the SBA or PTAC advisor will kind of discuss with you. They're going to want you to have your EIN number or if you're running as a sole proprietor, they'll want your social security, all that kind of stuff, and they're going to start asking you, okay, um, let's put the NAICS codes in and you're going to create a profile into the government portal. Now this is where a lot of the bigger contracts, remember I said that threshold amount, if a city or a state, county, whatever says, we're gonna spend money on this, they're required if it's above a certain dollar amount that they have to send out an RFP through their government portal. So you have to be registered and listed within there to be matched when you'll get an email saying, hey, you're invited to bid on this RFP. So, on the Minnesota level, there's a portal called SWIFT and then on the federal level, there is a program called SAM.gov and it's kind of, you know, a playoff of Uncle Sam. So, those two portals are different and each state has its own portal. So, if you say, I'm going to target all of the Midwest, you're going to have to set your small business up with every single government portal in that area. And that process is different per organization. Now, the nice thing about being a local business is that most organizations are pushing, they want the dollars to stay local. And part of that's because you're going to pay state tax and they want those taxes to stay local so they can keep going, right? So if you're in Minnesota and you're bidding on a contract for Minnesota, you're more likely to get it than say a person who's bidding on it from Wisconsin. And so, that's an advantage to you to start local and then work your way out from there as you have experience. There's some things that some people get a little nervous about as they're trying to go through this paperwork, and it's really nice to have your p advisor there. If you are going to specifically say, I want to register as a disabled veteran-owned business or a specific a small business set aside disadvantage. Now, each state has its own way of classifying this. Sometimes all of them are under one classification together or they're separated and you have to talk to a specific person in each area. For my experience, becoming a women-owned contractor within the state of Minnesota, that just classifies me under small disadvantaged business, women-owned, and then minority-owned are all lumped together in one certification process. When you do this aspect, though, you have to understand that the person who is saying, yes, this is me, has to own 51% of the company in order for you to qualify, first and foremost. And then the second thing they're going to do is they're actually going to investigate you to see, are you truly running the business? Because in the past, what was happening is a lot of construction companies were saying, oh yeah, my wife owns the business, it's a women-owned business, but she was a stay-at-home mom and she wasn't actually doing anything for the business. And they said, no, that's not fair, you can't do that. And so now they actually have a very thorough process of interviewing you. Sometimes they do on-site tours to see your business location, they want to see your resume, uh, all the things that you're responsible for. And if you're going for disadvantaged business, meaning that you make it under a dollar threshold, they'll also want to see your tax returns. They'll want to know your profit and loss statement and your personal net worth. And so all of those things, like the accounting side of it, is really important to have put together before you start going after these things. Because when you get to the federal level, the women-owned business certification, all of these different certifications, are actually completely different than your state's level. And so you have to do the whole thing again and jump through a whole bunch more hoops. And there's a lot of paperwork. So working with the government in general, expect that you're gonna have a lot of paperwork to do. A lot of it's online now, so it's not like you have to do it all in person unless you need to go get a notary, which is somebody like say from the bank to sign and watch you sign it uh, as a document, whatever. Now, all of this sounds really confusing, I promise you. If you do the process with a local guide who's part of the government to teach you how to do this to win procurement, you are going to be able to do it. It seems scary, but once you start getting it all set up and you just do your work to keep renewing it, it's set up. And all you have to do is once a year send in whatever. If you're going to be disadvantaged, it's like, here's my tax return, or whatever that is to sign off on a few forms to keep your certification. Okay, so for the gawk portion of this episode, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my experience recertifying this last year as a a women-owned business. So when I went through that process, they said, hey, you need to send all these forms in, you have till this date to do it in order to renew your certification. And I sent everything in, and then I never got a confirm that they received it, but I just figured, well, it's it's. I think it's in, and I just had a couple of questions, so I did try to call, but I couldn't get to the right person because sometimes they don't have their um, phone number and their email handle or whatever at the end. So I just was like, okay, well, I think I did it, and then I got a letter in the mail saying no. Your paperwork is not in and this is your basically like your final opportunity. And so I was like, this doesn't make sense. So I reached back out to my local PTAC person and forwarded the email and said, hey, I sent all this in. I don't know why we're having this problem because it should be on file. I don't know what the deal is. Well, come to find out, they had done a technology update and their IT program people decided to block all attachments and so all of the small businesses that were sending in their forms it was just blocking them from getting to the inbox so it looked like nobody was recertifying and they finally ended up getting figured out they're like oh we're so sorry we didn't realize this was happening and thanks for your patience in this process and so I always try to tell people these people that work in the government they're not trying to make things difficult. They also have to work around programs that can be difficult or tools that are constantly changing for them too. And if, as long as you approach it in a way where you're asking questions and just honestly being humble instead of frustrated about the situation, that'll get you a long way in, in helping them to help you. So Definitely try to work with your local providers that are there for you. I mean, your tax dollars pay for them to be there. So why not set up a meeting? Why not be proactive and follow up with them? And there's a lot of people that they service and they won't usually reach out to you. So it's really important for you to continue to reach out to them if you have more questions and get clarification, set up meetings. You, you can do that. It's okay. That's what they're there for. And that's what your tax dollars go towards. Now, if you enjoyed this episode today, would you give it a review on Spotify? And next week, I'm going to start getting into a little bit more of the process. Thanks for joining me.